look, look. I'm gonna tell a joke. And if they heckle me, if you heckle me, look out, because I'm ready. Just look out. That's all I can say. Just look out. Look out. That's all I can say. Yep, that's all he can say, all right. <laughs> uh, I learned to handle hecklers by working in a nightclub so tough the hat check girl was a gorilla. <laughs> there were more people in the band than in the audience, and we had a one-man band. Uh, 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 I remember what... Hey, hey, how come you guys aren't heckling me? We love it. That's funny stuff. And funny. Yeah, topical. Yeah. Oh, oh, well, well, well. At this nightclub, a party of 75 came in. A, a lonely, lonely old, old lady, lady, but she, she didn't, didn't drink much. <laughs> hey, and I wouldn't say conditions at the club were bad, but when we asked where we could take a bath... The manager ran us through the car wash next door. <laughs> hey, fellas. Hey, you guys, will you please... Please, please, we work alone. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, how's your holiday spirit? I mean, I'm not full Grinch. That's progress. I've got six inches of snow outside my house right now, so I'm feeling Christmas as hell. Oh, I miss snow. I just wish everything else in the world felt (laughs) jolly and merry. But uh, we're recording this in uh, December 2020, so this is actually our last recording of 2020. When we come back and record the next episode, since it'll be the next year, everything will be okay then, right? Hope springs eternal. I'm going to knock on wood since you just said that. Everything's going to be fine, right? 2021, as soon as it turns midnight, everything will be great. It isn't. This is a feat of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, please check us out on social media. We are at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then please check out lunaticdaring.com, our website that has our viewing list and our bibliography. Right now, we're going two episodes at a time through The Muppet Show. Right now, we're, we're in the first half of the first season, and um, we're going we're gonna to talk about The Muppet Show today. Bonsoir, bonsoir, mesdames and messieurs. Uh, that's ladies and gentlemen. You'll notice a little French sneaking into my speech, and that's because our special guest tonight is none other than that international star, Mr. Charles Aznavour. But right now, let's raise the curtain, strike up the band, and get things moving on the Muppet Show! So, Nick, we finally got to one. I had no clue who Charles Aznavour was. Episode 109 was produced end of June, early July, 1976, aired in November in the UK and January in the US. Broken record, but directed by Peter Harris, written by Burns, London, Jewel, and Henson. And we have Charles Aznavour. Do you know anything about him? He seemed like a nice guy. That's about the extent of it. French-Armenian singer and actor Charles Aznavour lived a hell of a life. He was born Shanor Vakinog Anzavorian in Paris in 1924. And in World War II, his family hid Jews, Armenians, and other persecuted peoples in their flat during the Nazi occupation of France, and had close ties with the resistance movement led by Armenian poet and activist Misak Mnuchin, who was a very famous Armenian poet. He was eventually executed uh, for his work in the resistance. Charles began singing publicly at nine years old, and during the war, began performing in nightclubs with a partner. During that time, he opened for La Vie en Rose singer Edith Piaf at the famous Moulin Rouge, where the legendary Chanteuse encouraged him to pursue a full-time career as a singer. So that's a pretty good endorsement. But get this, though. Over his 70-year career in music, 7-0, 
He wrote over a thousand songs, released 51 studio albums in nine different languages, and sold 180 million records. He recorded duets with Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Dusty Springfield, Frank Sinatra. He was actually kind of known as the French Sinatra. Elton John, Shirley Bassey, Liza Minnelli, and a whole bunch of other people. As a, an actor, he starred in Francois Truffaut's classic new wave crime thriller, Shoot the Piano Player, the controversial 1979 German film, The Tin Drum, and Adam Agoyan's film, Ararat, which is about a filmmaker making a documentary about the Armenian genocide. Young man, do you know what still causes so much pain? It's not the people we lost or the land. It's to know that we could be so hated. Who are these people who could hate us so much? How can they still deny their hatred and so hate us? Even more. I have seen all of those films. I did not know he was in any of them. He loved to play live and toured a lot. His final concert happened mere days before he died. He was an early supporter of LGBT rights. Uh, one of his first hit songs was a song called Kama Il Descent, which in English was called What Makes a Man, which was kind of had a homosexual um, undertones and overtones and was considered a huge taboo then. But he never, he always stood by it. Yeah, they make fun of how I talk and imitate the way I walk. Tell me if you can, what makes a man a man? My masquerade comes to an end When I go home to bed again Alone and friendless I close my eyes and think of him And fantasize what might have been And in 2002, he was named National Hero of Armenia, the country's highest honor. He spent most of his career championing and financing Armenian causes. Upon his death in 2018, Nick, he just died two years ago. He was honored with a state funeral in which French President Emmanuel Marcon called him one of the most important faces of France. 51 albums, 180 million records sold, and I didn't know a damn thing about him. <laughs> which is kind of nuts. Like, that's a, that's a career. Yeah. That's a huge star. You know, this is 1976, but you and I had no clue about him. He's hiding Jews in his basement, and then he's singing with at the at the Moulin Rouge, and, and then he's uh, acting in classic films. Like the dude had a hell of a life and lived to a very ripe old age. I found him to be charming. Yeah, he didn't seem like he was as woven into the episode. We're still early on. Some episodes it works, some episodes it doesn't. He was a singer and an actor sometimes, but there's actually one. There's a musical number that's not on the DVD. They cut a whole song. That might have changed my take on the episode, but let's continue. Our first bit is actually um, one of the rare appearances of Fran Brill on The Muppet Show. She mostly did a lot of Sesame Street. She didn't do The Muppet Show a whole lot. There's a musical number to I Feel Pretty from West Side Story. I Feel Pretty is a song that's been used before for The Muppets. They used it on the Ed Sullivan Show. It's going to be used again. It's a song that they came back to a lot. I think because it's easy to play the iron, uh, play irony in the song. Because in this bit, you have a, a whatnot Muppet who is singing I Feel Pretty, and she's, I guess, traditionally attractive, and 
as she's singing the song, she's what taking pieces off of her face and turning herself into a monster. They did it twice. I don't know if there's like a specific sketch archetype that's in play here. This is something they did a lot. No, the Wayne's brothers actually picked it because they did this <laughs> oh, really? once. Oh, really? They did it and don't be a menace to South Central while drinking your juice in the hood. Mm, 90s classic. 90s classic. Yep. The setup for it was always that whoever it was, whether it was Marlin or I think it was, uh, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name when he was the one that launched them all. Keenan? Whether it was Sean, uh, Marlin or Keenan, they would always tell a woman that they were about to sleep with that they really just wanted her to be herself. At which point she would like take out a prosthetic eye or lose a leg <laughs> or like, I think in Don't Be a Menace, she turned into uh, the chick from The Exorcist. Like just going like, I'm so happy I can finally be myself. I can't speak to how well those jokes do or don't age, but it was weird to watch this with those in the back of my mind. Isn't that the movie where Marlon Wayne's father is younger than him? That was Sean's. Sean's father was younger than him, yeah. Nothing in that movie makes sense, but it's great. I worked at a video store in the 90s. I've definitely seen Dolby and Menace more than once. <laughs> what this reminded me of was actually the Twilight Zone episode. The one with the woman who's going in for surgery and had to get... I, I the Beholder. Yep. But it also reminded me of other Muppet things we've seen, right? There's there's several Muppet bits along the way. I'm thinking of kind of the Southern Colonel and things like that, where they use the fact that they're puppets with interchangeable parts. And they kind of break that wall. But what was up with the little vampire girls? Because um, that creeped me out. Because, okay, I feel pretty. She's making herself ugly. Obviously, the twist is that at the end, Beautiful Day Monster comes in and that's his date. And he thinks she's gorgeous because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But when she's singing, she's backed up on the side by these two little, like, blonde girls with vampire teeth. <laughs> I think that was around the time that she swapped in her uh, her prosthetic teeth or her, her fake teeth, too. Or, I mean, all of it's fake. But. Sure. But why the little vampire girls? Why, why do we have two little Kirsten Dunsts on the sides of the screen? Also, they're not supposed to have reflections if they are vampires. It was just, it was a, it was a weird touch. I don't know. <laughs> the next note that I have written down when we get to the backstage story is, everyone in this episode is kind of an asshole. In a lot of episodes, most of the cast is a little bit of an asshole. I think they're going to get a little more lovable in later seasons. But early on, like both of these episodes, a lot of these guys are kind of pricks. I mean, flat out, Gonzo asked Kermit why he's not getting on the show anymore. And Kermit's like, uh, Gonzo, I have seen you eat a rubber tire to music. And I've seen you play a concert on your head with a mallet. Yeah. And Gonzo, my dear friend, it doesn't work. Uh, although I did notice if you know, there was a little bit of continuity there because Kermit said, I have watched you eat a tire to fly to the bumblebee. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a lot of continuity with the Muppets. But this was an actual shout out to an older episode. The backstage story is basically Scooter becomes Godzo's manager. Yeah, uh, for a minute. It's a very thin. I did find myself feeling bad for him, but. You felt bad for Gonzo? A little bit. I yeah. think that's mostly just because I also pick up on the fact that Gonzo at this point in time isn't going to pick up social cues at all. Season one Gonzo is very different from the Gonzo that we know. I should keep that in mind. But I, I do remember like looking at him missing all those cues and sort of being like, are we are we wrong for laughing at this? This early puppet for Gonzo is a lot sadder. What's going to happen between seasons is Dave Goals is going to go into the workshop. He's going to open his eyes up a little bit more. He's going to give him a mechanism inside the puppet to give him the ability to open his eyes wide in wonder. They're going to brighten the color of him a little bit in the same way that in the second season, they're going to brighten Fozzie's color a little bit. Mm. And that helps considerably. I did like the fact that, just like he has before, called Kermit a yokel. You'll all see because there's only one great Gonzo. Only one! Thank goodness for that. <laughs> yokel, Rube! On the DVD, what happens then is there's this weird cut from this scene 
straight to another scene backstage with Gonzo. It's kind of this weird kind of cheap, like, iMovie wipe. I don't know if you noticed that. I did. It did feel weird for them to have something go on for that long, because I was expecting it to be a bit more fragmented. Well, it was, because in between there, they cut out a musical number. It was a, a Charles Aznavour singing a song called The Old Fashioned Way, which was a song he had written, one of his, you know, thousand songs. And it's him dancing with Mildred. This was actually, if you include this, this is a big episode for Mildred. He's dancing with Mildred. But what you missed, I watched it today. What you missed, though, is that while he's slow dancing with Mildred and singing the song, there are several full-sized humanoid puppets dancing around him. They're not quite Musicians of Bremen creepy, but they're still that, obviously, people in suits, and it's a little disconcerting. But he sings this kind of French Sinatra. Again, he was known as the French Sinatra, and that's exactly the type of song he sings, you know. But that was cut, and that's why... There's this weird transition between the scenes. Normally, it, when it aired, it wasn't like that. But it was nice because Mildred, you know, he's singing kind of this love song to Mildred. And as we know, Mildred's bit was pretty thirsty back at the Valentine show. Yeah. It's good to see her getting some love. We continue with the Gonzo storyline. and uh, Yeah, but Scooter, I hired you as a gopher. Gopher coffee, gopher sandwiches, remember? <laughs> yeah, well, I can still do that. But Gonzo needs personal management. Oh, I do, Kermit. I truly do. Yeah, I'm going to change his whole repertoire. I'm going to have him do a rock act. A rock act? But Gonzo can't sing. No, no, I mean a rock act. Uh, show him, Gonzo. Now watch. <laughs> okay, hit it, kid. Okay. <laughs> art! 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 Shouting art. I love art, bam. Art, bam. Art. <laughs> I don't know. Something about that really made me laugh. But that's what it takes to make it art. It's just to scream the word art. I dig it, though, because I... This is a, a slight tangent. Someone forced me to sit down and watch the uh, Basquiat biopic, and I didn't really know who he was beforehand, and I couldn't stand him afterward. It's the one with Jeffrey Wright. Bowie was playing Warhol. Bruno called. He said that people in Europe are saying you're burning your candle at both ends. Well, I think it's awful that people are talking like that. I think you should, like, I don't know, stick around, prove them wrong. I just remember watching it and just being like, I don't... The art he creates is fine, but as a person, I, I can't stand him. It's funny, going back to 90s video stores, that was that was in the heyday of 90s independent films. I also have an obnoxious habit of, like, subbing people in, though. So if Gonzo had been playing Basquiat in that, suddenly it becomes significantly <laughs> more palatable. We may cut that, because that might be a million-dollar idea. <laughs> and we have to remember sometimes that The Muppet Show wasn't just for kids. <laughs> and this is important to remember when we get to this week's Veterinarian's Hospital. Oh, it's so great. Because how does the Veterinarian's Hospital open? I'm going to say that Rolf is doing his best Darth Vader impression, except he wasn't doing a Darth Vader impression. He was getting high. Dr. Bob is huffing laughing gas <laughs> before surgery. Piggy is cranking up the nitrous on the tank. And Dr. Bob is taking a couple of big hits. And then he takes it off and he says, mm, This is D for dog, B for Bob saying turn off the joy juice. By the way, this is not the only time they're going to do deplorable behavior before surgery. This is going to happen again. There is nothing in the world more helpless and irresponsible and depraved than a man in the depths of an ether binge. And I knew we'd get into that rotten stuff pretty soon. I don't remember much about it other than the fact the patient was dead and that he was high the whole time. <gasps> no pulse, Dr. Bob. Heartbeat. No heartbeat, Dr. Bob. No pulse, no heartbeat, no use. He's gone. <laughs> operating and he went just like that yes doesn't the time go fast when you're having fun <laughs> too bad dr bob 
Your record was so good, you saved nine out of ten. My record is still good. This week he was number ten. I'm trying to keep this one from blurring together with the one from 110, so I... That one, he does something else disgusting before he starts uh, surgery. And then we we have a very, I don't know, little interstitial with uh, Hilda bringing Charles some lunch. Yeah, it's like a roast chicken salad and French bread, but the French bread looks like a standard loaf until it starts speaking. Oh, voyons, chérie, mais j'ai l'accent français. I do have to say, surprisingly, Hilda's becoming one of my favorite Muppets, and I don't know why. Hilda's very condescending uh, in a later bit, too. She's <laughs> she's one of the assholes in this episode, actually, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. when, when, when dealing with uh, Gonzo. Then we're at the dance that has more Margaret again uh with a rudyard kipling reference there's a couple of bad banana jokes they did sort of hammer that one home but the best part about it was animal's dance partner shows him what it's like to dance with animal and he's into it <laughs> he's into it so we've so been following this right where mm-hmm. animal's pretty brutal with his dance partners and apparently they were following this too because in this one she says you know what it's like dancing with you no what one, two, three, dip. Ah, oh, I love it. More, more. One, two, three, dip. Yeah, more. She dips his head into the floor. And man, if we didn't know this guy was a sadomasochist to begin with. <laughs> like, I mean, let's be fair. Animal likes it rough. We just know that. Yeah. It kind of makes the other scenes, in my opinion, less problematic in a weird way. I don't think animals ever hateful, though. No, it's a sign of affection. <laughs> Apparently. Because he digs it. He loves getting his head slammed on the floor, so he probably assumes others do too. This was kind of a little bit of a turnabout and then a turnabout on the turnabout. Then we get our UK spot, the Gugulala Jubilee Jug Band, singing Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor on the Bedpost Overnight, which is a hundred-year-old novelty song. I mean, I, I misheard it at first, and then after like a chorus or two, I was like, okay, that, that isn't as bad as I thought it was. But at first, I was just like, are they sliding stuff past the radar? No, it's not a dirty song. I, I get that now. Does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? If your mother says don't chew it, do you swallow it in spite? Can you catch it on your tonsils? Can you heave it left and right? Does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? And then uh, talk spot, we get a little more horny piggy, where Charles explains to Kermit the reason he's so good with the ladies is because he speaks French. It is Frank doing Piggy in this. Some of the other, like the, the at the dance, it was definitely Richard Hunt. And, and um, Veterinarian's Hospital was Richard Hunt. Charles is trying to basically woo her by speaking French. Now, this is a bit of a thing because Piggy is known to know some French, but not yet. That has not been established as her character yet. So the whole idea is she doesn't speak French. And so he's whispering sweet nothings into her ear. Votre carte est une fuite et votre transmission c'est cool. Your oil filter has a leak and your transmission is sagging. <laughs> it's what he says to her in French. I don't know car metaphors well enough. Is that a euphemism? I don't know. <laughs> it, uh, you know, the words, uh, it, it doesn't sound flattering. How about that? <laughs> it's <laughs> no, not, not at it's all. Not flattering. I mean, I know the joke is just the fact that he can say anything in French and he'll turn her on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this bit does end with, I think, our first full on high yaw from Piggy when she uh, whacks Kermit. Well, one man's poison is another man's bacon. <laughs> so then we, we go backstage again, and Scooter has decided that Gon... Now, here here's probably the least, um, I'll use the phrase, the least woke segment of the episode. 
Gonzo decides he's going to do a female impersonator act. And Kermit is very uncool in this. Gonzo comes out in like a blonde wig and stuff. And now the joke is that he's going to be do a female impersonator act. But he's like, but what do I do when I get out there? <laughs> like, I don't, There's no act. It's just that I'm dressed up like a woman. But Kermit is very unwoke about it. He finds the idea of a man wearing women's clothes to be quite ridiculous. Well, Scooter says that, 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 that female impersonation is a noble art. Of all the dumb acts Gonzo's ever come up with, this is the dumbest. Oh, gee, my uncle loves it. You go on right after the dancers. <laughs> what do I do when I get out there? Duck. There are levels to it, giving him the benefit of the doubt. I think if it had been an actual passion for Gonzo, he might have reacted differently. He might not have. But for them to be doing this as a bit in order to raise his visibility, Scooter wasn't necessarily in the right here either. The scenario aside, just the fact of like, ha ha, he's going to wear a dress, you know, or he's mm-hmm. going to dress like a woman. Just, you know, again, it just it's 1976. It doesn't age uh, in the way that we would like it. It just doesn't. I guess what was upsetting to me, not upsetting, but what threw me, I mean, it's, again, it was that Kermit's had a very visceral reaction to this. He was like very angry almost about it. The thing is, they never play it out. They never, it never happens, though. <laughs> The whole story is Scooter is going to manage Gonzo and it ends up going absolutely nowhere. But I guess narratively, I kind of wanted Gonzo to have some payoff to this. He never actually gets on stage this episode, except for for the panel discussion. Yeah, like I would have liked for him to actually have found something. His act isn't working. Kermit's basically like, listen, dude, I'll keep you around, but I'm not putting you on stage. Your act sucks. He gets Scooter to manage him. He comes up with all these different acts, but he doesn't come up with like a final act as a redemptive moment. True. There's no payoff to it. I think those will get better as time goes on, and maybe we're thinking too hard narratively about these things, but I think these things do matter. They do. I used to perform improv, and I know that one of the the big maxims for us was that the audience is more likely to laugh if they feel like they're in on the joke. And we, I'm speaking for a lot of people here, and I probably shouldn't, but people trace patterns, and there is an inclination toward narrative, and more specifically narrative resolution or catharsis. And if we don't get that, it doesn't feel as good. You don't feel like you've been told a whole story. The thing is, these backstage bits, at least in this episode, well, the next episode doesn't really have them. But in this one, like, it's still, t- it is telling a story, right? I mean, it may be a slight story and it may not be super deep and it may be a little uh, whatever, but it just doesn't pan out. Uh, you know, to me, the best episodes are the ones where the backstage and the stage collide at the end. So then we get the panel discussion where everyone is a giant asshole to Gonzo, but Gonzo is also real dumb. Yeah. All right. I suggest that we look carefully at what's before us and break it down into separate pieces. Jack. Oh, heavens to the Betsy. He means the question. Yes, but we should be looking for the answer. He's kind of a walking target. (laughs) So it's Sam and Hilda and Mildred and Gonzo and Kermit. And the topic is what is man's role in the universe? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm already getting kind of tired of the panel discussions. It varies. I know that. Other than Rita Moreno. Yeah, that was. Are we going to hold up everything next to Rita Moreno for the entire season? (laughs) (laughs) It's fair. She was amazing. But I don't think that there's necessarily a problem with the format. It just needs the right cast calculus. And the right central premise thing, I think, Mm -hmm. as well. Because, like, what is man's role in the universe? The Rita Moreno one was about, you know, his conversation of dying art. Part of the joke is about conversation, is about communication. The theme of the discussion is then played out ironically through the actions of the characters. To me, that's a successful panel discussion. 
This one doesn't really do that. What is man's role in the universe? None of what they talk about really has anything to do with that. It also doesn't really cohere. It's just basically Gonzo being literal. Every, every time anyone says anything to Gonzo, he does it literally. Whether he's looking for, we need to find the answer, and he looks under the table, or whether he needs to hop to it, and he starts hopping. And he's just real dumb in, in, in a way that I don't think we see him any other time. Mildred and Hilda are both kind of little catty towards Gonzo. They, they, they're very condescending to him. But then, of course, it turns out that... Well, as to man's role in the universe, I don't think he can. Can what? I don't think he can roll in the universe. I mean, he's not round enough to roll. This can't be happening. I think all of them missed the point, which is kind of standard for the panel discussion. We get the fabulous and furry Fozzie Bear comes out. Does some jokes. Statler and Waldorf take his punchline from him, right? Mm -hmm. He comes out and he tells him he's going to burn them. He's got he's he's ready for the hecklers. He's ready to burn the hecklers or bury the hecklers. And uh, then they basically take his jokes away from him. Then we get, I guess, our conclusion to the backstage story. It's the equivalent of killing someone off off stage. Yeah. yeah, basically. Scooter has decided not to manage Gonzo because when he gave Gonzo his 50 page contract to be his manager, Gonzo ate it. Now, well, first of all, Gonzo's not animal. Animal would eat his contract. I don't believe Gonzo would eat his contract unless he was on stage. Gonzo's, it's a weird critique to levy at a Muppet, but he's pretty one-dimensional this season. Yes, he is. And his entire character is, I am an avant-garde artist, and I am the annoying kind of full method. Although Kermit did have a good line with the, uh... Well, let's hope the contract's not binding. Yeah. That, okay, that was funny. That was a nice little joke. Wouldn't it have been more of a payoff if, like, he had done something with the contract on stage? Yeah, absolutely. I don't buy the fact that Gonzo just sits down and eats a contract. I believe he would only do that if there's a camera on him or if there's an audience or if, I don't know, the Blue Danube Waltz is playing, you know, like he needs mm -hmm. he needs a set piece to do crazy things like that. I don't know if he would just do it in his spare time. Then we get our musical finale, which not the most high energy thing to go out on. So my impression watching that, because I didn't see the other musical number, I thought it was great, but I think it should have been earlier in the episode. Like he's got a really nice voice. Yeah. Like, it's a sweet song, but it didn't feel like a closer. He sings Inchworm, which is a song by Frank Lessler. It's from the 1952 film Hans Christian Andersen that starred Danny Kaye and Farley Granger. It, they, they did it on Sesame Street at one point. It's a well-staged number where you have the silhouette play. Um, you have the character Zelda Rose is kind of the their default school teacher character and some children. And they're kind of singing, I don't know what, what part of the song you would call it. Is it, it's, is it the chorus? It's kind of a chorus. And yeah, he sings it and he's got a little inchworm that looks a lot like uh, Oscar the Grouch has a pet worm, uh, Slimy. It's nice. He has a wonderful voice. He was obviously a huge singing star. It could sing in many, many languages. I just thought for our final number, pretty low key. You're right. It would have made a much better kind of opening number. We get to the end and uh, Kermit says goodnight. And it turns out that Charles has become friends with his French bread. A wonderful evening for me. The first chance I ever had to make friends with a loaf of bread. After hearing his his life story, it's going to be a lot easier to remember. But without that, I would have probably forgotten his name within like a month or two. I'm not so sure comedy is his thing. I think they could have, though, because the, the bit, the talk spot with Piggy, he was doing well in. Yeah. Maybe outside of Veterinarian's Hospital, there's not really a standout bit from this episode. Especially compared to the second episode that I think has a couple of real standout moments. 
I'm guessing, I'm trying to put myself in 1976. Now, first of all, when this was shot, I was uh, about to be born or just born. I wasn't. Yeah, no, you were not. Editor's note, I was exactly two weeks old when they started shooting this episode. But if I'm trying to put myself in the head of someone in 1976, like Charles Aznavour was a name and people knew who he was. I'm guessing people, women swooned over him. I'm guessing he was considered kind of a French lover. Reading about him and then writing up a little piece about his life story was uh, eye-opening. Because I was like, man, this guy lived a life. <laughs> Quite a life. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Harvey Corman. Who's Harvey Corman? So I didn't recognize his name, but he's also sort of like uh, Paul Williams last week. He's touched a lot of my favorite media. Um, and I'll, I'll get to that shortly, but he was born in Chicago on February 15th, 1927. He joined the Navy during World War II, and his filmography is kind of exhausting just because he's done so many bit roles. I don't know that he was the original voice of the Great Gazoo. I think he was on the, the Flintstones. He did a little bit of other voiceover work. Uh, his breakout role was 1967 on The Carol Burnett Show, for which he, wrought, he won four Emmys in 1969, 1971, 1972, and 74. And then he also won the Golden Globe for that in 1975. He did have his own show, but it was only on the air for like five episodes in 1975. It didn't last very long. What I know him best for is Blazing Saddles. Who is he in Blazing Saddles? He's, um... He, he's Hadley Lamar. He's the main antagonist. Right. Yeah, he's the bad guy. Yeah. Men, you are about to embark on a great crusade to stamp out runaway decency in the West. Now you will only be risking your lives, whilst I will be risking an almost certain Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. He was in High Anxiety, which I've heard of, but I've never seen. Yeah, that's Mel Brooks's uh, Alfred Hitchcock tribute. It's okay. He was also in History of the World Part 1. Your Majesty, you look like the piss boy. And you look like a bucket of- And he would work with Mel Brooks again in Dracula Dead and Loving It, which didn't age as well as a lot of the rest of Mel Brooks's work. Not Mel's uh, best moment. But he, he did pass away at 81 on May 29th, 2008. I don't know how to describe the persona he puts on, but there's a very specific... I've seen bits and pieces of his work, so I probably shouldn't say it as a, a general rule, but in Blazing Saddles in our Muppet episode in History of the World, there's this... Do I want to call it campy? Like, he's he's very over-the-top, and it's a very distinct kind of over-the-top. To me, he's 70s comedian. Like, 70s comedic actor. He is large in his performance. Yes. He's, not, he's not a subtle man, as, as we'll see in this episode, where he has some kind of broad comedic bits. Episode 110, already up to number 10. Produced in late May 1976, premiered that winter uh, in the U.S. and in the U.K. The first thing I wanted to mention is there is no backstage story this week. Yeah, I guess there wasn't. There's one scene backstage. We started pretty chaotic too, didn't we? Kermit was he said he wants to get the show off on a high note, and then someone. <laughs> oh, then Waldorf says something about getting the show started with a bang, and Crazy Harry shows up in their box. They need to get a lock for their box. I mean, sometimes they're assaulted from the stage. It might be a lost cause. It might be. It might be. Besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like to play? <laughs> so then we get a number we've seen before. Our favorite band. This is a very good episode for the Electric Mayhem. Watching these episodes so far, I think my favorite part of these early episodes is the Mayhem. Oh, yeah, they're great. They're amongst my favorite characters in the show early on. These kind of straight ahead musical numbers... You know, I mean, this one's not quite straight ahead. It's got some comedy to it. 
but their straight ahead musical numbers, I think the puppeteering for them is really great. And we're going to talk about that in a second because the, the Mayhem have two numbers in this one. So they come out and they sing Love You to Death, which was also a song that they sang in the Sex and Violence episode. It's not the same skit. They didn't reuse the footage because they added something to this one, which is explosions. explosions. <laughs> It's it's just the exact same bit. It's them singing Love You to Death, by the way, if you don't remember, is actually a, a Joe Raposo original. And I think it's full of innuendo. He talks about blasting a tunnel to your love. That's entirely possible. I was distracted by the explosions. I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the lyrics. <laughs> I don't know if it is, but it sounds dirty. Electric Mayhem isn't necessarily going to be known for subtlety. Crazy Harry's not even in it, though. I, w- I was looking for him to see if you would just see him bopping around backstage, but we never see a close-up on That's him. That's what I expected. I thought we would, like, see Crazy Harry running around the background. He's making the explosesions. But, like, that's why it reminded me of Nickelodeon. It's not Crazy Harry. It's just the gods who <laughs> don't want you to say bang. And then Kermit interviews Animal, which I thought was kind of weird. And uh, something we haven't really seen before. Uh, Animal, uh, uh, why don't you tell our audience, how long have you been playing the drums? Uh, uh. One, two, three, four. Five. Five years, huh? Yes, okay. Well, I, I guess uh, your drums uh, mean a great deal to you, huh? Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, nice. You like them more than food, I guess, huh? They, they mentioned Buddy Rich, the drummer, who Animal will have a uh, an epic drum battle with uh, in the future. And then we get Talking Houses. Let's move on. <laughs> I'm sorry. They're so lame. I'm sorry. I it's, it's the one thing that, like, I have yet to enjoy a Talking House joke. And this one I thought was particularly bad. My insides are killing me. Oh, ulcers? No, movers. <laughs> Then we get Harvey's, I'd say, big set piece, where he plays Maurice the Magnificent, an animal trainer, a particularly grumpy animal trainer. It flips the idea of a ferocious animal on its head, because you do get Thog, and Thog is massive and could be terrifying under the right circumstances, but Thog's really just nice to him and very complimentary the entire time until he throws him in the cage. Although, (laughs) I didn't dislike this sketch, but Harvey didn't feel... It's not fair to say that it felt canned, but it didn't really feel like he was... I'll say it felt canned. Mm Mm-hmm. You were talking about him as kind of this, you know, broad, over-the-top comic. This is what we're talking about. This, to me, felt like he was on autopilot, right? Like, it, it's not that he's not good in it. It's not that he's not fine. He's just on autopilot. There's a hundred comedians that could have done this exact thing. What makes the sketch work is Thog. Mm-hmm. Thog has this sweet little voice coming from this big monster. But remember him singing about... Pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with the real... Live girl. Oh god, that was Thog, wasn't it? <laughs> Thog's an incel. <laughs> I will always think of Thog as the incel. He is the full neck beard. 
So yeah, there's this juxtaposition of you expecting this wild animal because he's a wild animal. He's like basically like a lion tamer, right? He's got a whip and stuff. He's dressed up like he's in the circus. And then Thal comes out no matter, and he's just sweet and complimentary and kind. And he keeps saying nice things about his master. Morris is such a good animal trainer. He got so much patience and courage and persistence. Shut up, you black-hearted hellhound! And love. What a sweet man. <laughs> Thog's very funny in it. And uh, he even does a little Thog shuffle, which is kind of Thog's trademark. I had forgotten how much Thog there is early on. Thog's not a character that is going to, you know, you don't think about Thog when you think about the Muppets. And I think he's going to fade from the spotlight, but he gets he gets some g- big, good set pieces early on, from Mia Farrow to something like this. Harvey didn't look directly at Thog for most of this, did he? How about this? It feels like a generic performance. Yeah, and as I say that, like I've I've really enjoyed other performances that I've seen from him, so I don't. Yeah, that doesn't mean he has to be great on the in this particular sketch. Is it funnier if it's Kermit instead of Harvey or some other character? You know, and, uh, if, is it funnier if there's a Muppet as the animal tamer? Honestly, if it had been Gonzo, it probably would have worked great. It's just playing with the idea that Thog is this big, scary-looking monster, and really, he's just a sweet little puppy dog. But you're right, though. In the end, he does shove Corman into the cage. Apparently, he still has some animus towards his, uh, his jailer. So then we have a panel discussion with Kermit, Piggy, Harvey, some whatnot. And uh, another pig, actually, which I think is, uh, again, the strange pork puppet, if I remember, but maybe not. And this is, what is the meaning of life? And this has a cute visual joke in it, though. Harvey says he thinks life is like a tennis game. Him and Piggy are on other ends of the table, and they start arguing over that, and everyone in the middle starts moving their head back and forth like they're watching a tennis match. Oh, no, it isn't. (laughs) Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. And a pig's eye in it. It's not the kind of slam at me. This episode was shot at the very end of May 1976. At the end of this panel discussion, Kermit says, Join us again next week when our subject will be, Is Conversation a Dying Art? Which is the topic for the discussion in the Rita Moreno episode, which was the very next episode to shoot, the beginning of June 76. So even though they're numbered out of order, that was actual continuity. There's very rarely connections between episodes. And so I thought this was just interesting. Uh, can we have a little order here, please? Oh, yeah, I'll have a ham and cheese on rye. That is the most insulting thing I ever heard. At the dance, George talks about uh, how much he's into self-love. Oh, my beloved George, even though we come from two different worlds, I find myself strangely attracted to you. Yeah, I feel the same way. <gasps> you mean you're attracted to me? No, to me. Weird, huh? Then we have, yeah, our only backstage scene, and it's not very good. Muppy's struggling at this point. Muppy's starting to see what happened to the Land of the Gorge guys, and he knows that that's where he's headed. (laughs) So it's Rolf and Muppy and Harvey Corman. It's talking, basically the joke is that uh, we have to save the trees for the ecology because dogs need trees to piss on, basically. It's it's actually, the joke is kind of muddled, though. It is. There's There's not a punchline per se. You can imply it. Yeah, that's that. That's exactly the right way to put it. The the punchline is implied. If it wasn't for something later, this next bit would be my favorite of the episode, and that's the UK spot, which is the Electric Mayhem back again for a second performance, singing "Sweet Tooth Jam," which is again a Muppet original written by Derek Scott, who was a music producer and actually the pianist for the actual Muppet Orchestra. And I think this one is dope. 
This is just the Electric Mayhem in a jam session. And they each get to solo, right? They're just playing the song, and the whole time, Animal's just screaming the word, yeah! What I really dug about this one is the performances. Zoot is wailing on that saxophone. Mm-hmm. And Dave Gold plays that so well. And, and, and so they're playing this number, and it gives each of them, Janice and Floyd and Animal and even Dr. Teeth and, and, and Zoot, they all get little solos on their instruments. And I just love the performance of it. They gave such life, and I feel like they really, the performers, there's five members of the Electric Mayhem. There are five key Muppet performers, and each one of them controls one of the members of the Electric Mayhem. When you see the Electric Mayhem playing, that is the core group of Muppet performers. The way they interact with each other on stage, they feel like real musicians to me. They feel like they're sharing the space like real musicians do when they're on stage. I don't know. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed this one. Now, we get a weird talk spot with Harvey Corman. So what do you think about Harvey being upset that he's the token human on the show? It was kind of weird. So it's, Kurt, yeah. it's Kermit and Harvey, and they're talking about the fact that Harvey's uncomfortable being on the show because he's the only human. It's just, I don't know, it didn't go anywhere to me. I mean, it does go somewhere. It ends up with Harvey in a chicken suit. <laughs> he's playing broadly to the audience. He's, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily feel like he's playing with the characters as much as he's playing to the audience. Or he's playing a character in his mind, or he's just doing... You're right, Harvey Corman was a funny man, and Harvey Corman was in a lot of great stuff. In this episode, to me, it feels like he is just... He turns on the, he turns on the Harvey Corman spigot, and he plays Harvey Corman for the episode. You know, comes in, he does a few bits, and he leaves, and you get kind of this generic... Still, you know, amusing, but generic broad comedy. Aren't you having a great time? Now, Kermit, you and I are good friends, aren't we? Mm-hmm. You want me to tell you the truth, don't you? Well, only if you're having a great time. Otherwise, you have my permission to lie like crazy. Well, I can't lie to you, I've got to tell you how I feel. <clears throat> All right, says the frog, preparing himself to face the music. What is the major problem? The major problem is that... I... I'm the only human being on this show. <laughs> how's, that? how's that again? You heard me. I'm the token person around here. Kermit fixes that by putting him in a chicken suit. Which felt... I don't know. And now, Veterinarian's Hospital. The continuing story of a former orthopedic surgeon who's gone to the dogs. (laughs) This time, instead of huffing, laughing gas, but don't worry, that's going to come back. (laughs) Instead of huffing, laughing gas, Bob blows his nose into his surgical mask... (laughs) Which, in the age of COVID, totally freaked me out. Terrifying. <laughs> that probably would have never have bothered me, but in, in, two th- in 2020, that's not how you use a mask, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was a good one, though. It was. The, the patient with gas on the table. He had hiccups, but they physically knocked him out, didn't they? Like, they bonked him on the head? <laughs> well, yeah, he calls for anesthesia, and Piggy hands him a mallet. <laughs> <laughs> and he just conks him on the head. Dr. Bob is very much like a Marx Brothers character. He's basically Groucho Marx. Anesthetic, Dr. Bob. Uh, is this operation really necessary? <laughs> Scalpel. No, suture. 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 There. Scalpel. Scalpel, Dr. Bob. Ah! <laughs> How long have you been a nurse? Well, uh, what time is it? <laughs> Dr. Bob is so busy complaining about his own life, he's ignoring his patient. This guy, every time he hiccups, he keeps getting more and more inflated. I mean, Henson does like to end with an explosion. I'm up to my ear 
daughter's in debt. My wife is leaving me. I'm being sued for malpractice. And all you can say is, but Dr. Bob. <laughs> but Dr. Bob. I tell you, I tell you, I'm so on edge. I'm about to explode. <laughs> and then the patient explodes and um, leaving just his head, which leads, of course, to uh, the patient deciding to quit while he's ahead. <laughs> then we get uh, Wayne and Wanda come out. <laughs> Sam. Hmm? I think Wayne's abusive. In this one, he, well, so, yeah, it's a little, so Sam introduces Wayne and Wanda, and he says, these people make me cry all the time, right? They always bring a tear to his eye. And you think it's because of the, the beautiful material, but it's really because they keep embarrassing him. Yeah. And Wanda sings, I Get a Kick Out of You, which is a 1934 Cole Porter song. It reminded me a little bit of, remember Connie Stevens and the Mutations? Mm-hmm. where the whole joke of that bit was that they were, like, fighting for screen time. Like, they were fighting to mm-hmm. be, like, in front of the camera. So basically, this is just Wanda singing the song, and Wayne can't get a word in edgewise, and, and she keeps getting in between him and the camera, or, I guess, the audience, right? And uh, so they kicks her. <laughs> yeah. Like, we were, we were talking about Animal earlier and the fact that he's, like, constantly dipping people and there's a lot of physical comedy. But there's never, if you'll forgive the expression, there's never any animosity behind it. I yeah. legit think that Wayne wanted to hurt Wanda. Well, yeah, she was taking all the spotlight. <laughs> I don't think they actually like each other. <laughs> Wayne and Wanda, they don't become major characters, but in my head canon... They have a very, like, they really despise each other. Like, when, you know, they're, they're like the rock bands that all travel in separate buses. <laughs> I would love to see the Wayne and Wanda eat your Hollywood story, because I bet they freaking hate each other. He just clocks her. Now, the song's called I Get a Kick Out of You, so of course the joke Set is that he kicks her. Listen, if the Muppets sing a song called I Get a Kick Out of You and someone doesn't get kicked, then someone needs to be fired. Yeah. But you're right. This does seem particularly malicious. (laughs) He would rather just kick her and end the bit than let her get all the spotlight. (laughs) Then we get an appearance by a good old T.R. Rooster from the Muppet Musicians of Bremen, who's made a couple appearances. And it's just him leading a thing of marching chickens. And Harvey is amongst them because he's still in the chicken suit. This was a blackout sketch. This was just a little interstitial thing. Muppy does make another appearance. Begging. Begging for screen time, Muppy is. Put me in, coach. (laughs) Now we get to, we've talked a little bit about this on the show, is the struggle that Jerry Jewell, the other writers, Henson, and Frank Oz had in the character of Fozzie Bear. He was just sad. It it turned out it was kind of depressing to watch this guy be really bad at his job. So in this episode, we have a scene where Jerry Jewell, uh, according, and this is in the Brian J. Jones book, According to Jerry Jewell, he wrote this scene. What's funny thing is this scene doesn't, we're about to talk about, doesn't actually fit into the episode anywhere. It just kind of shows up, which actually makes sense because it was written last minute. It was basically taken from the offices off the typewriter down to the production floor. Henson and Oz got to read it a couple times, and then they did this in one take. Frog of my heart, yes. you will just wait until I say the word here. When you hear me say the word here, you will rush up to me and say, Good grief, the comedians are bare. Good grief, the comedians are bare. Check. When you say the word here. Right. Gotcha. Okay, here we go. Ready? Okay, here we go. Now then. Hiya, hiya, hiya. You're a wonderful looking audience. It's a pleasure to be here. Good grief, the comedians are bare. (laughs) You just said here. That was the wrong here. Which is the right here? The other here. Go, go, go. Hey, hey, folks, this is a story you're going to love to hear. Good grief, the comedians are (laughs) back. 
what you said here. Not that here. No wish here. Another here. What am I gonna know? You know what you All right, all right. Listen, yes. you will know when I point to you. <laughs> all right, don't grumble. <clears throat> Say, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the theater. At the stage door, I passed a bunch of Muppet fans and suddenly I hear... <laughs> Good grief, the comedian's a bear. No, he's a nut. He's a wearer in a necktie. I love it so much. I love it so much. I would put that up against anything Abbott and Costello ever did. And again, this is according to Jones, but also to Jerry Jewell, who, who he quotes a lot in it. That's the moment they figured out the character for Fozzie. Jerry Jewell said he watched them perform that, and his quote is that they played the hell out of it, his exact quote, which is absolutely true. Listening to it doesn't quite do it justice because the performances um, by Jim and Frank are so good. But Jewel said that when he was watching them shoot that, he said, now there's a character. And this is the sketch that cements the relationship. You know, Fozzie was created to be Kermit's right-hand man, to be the Ernie to his Bert. Jim and Frank had created this, you know, duo with Bert and Ernie, and they knew the two of them working together were really damn funny. And so they wanted to create that same chemistry on The Muppet Show. And so that's why Fozzie was created to be Kermit's sidekick, buddy, foil, what have you. This is the moment they figured it out. He can be bad at his job, but still be upbeat and funny. When I saw it, I thought I'd seen it before uh, for the podcast, but I it, it might just be something that was part of the cultural osmosis that comes with The Muppets. If you see like a Best of The Muppet Show clip package, I have a hard time believing you wouldn't. You wouldn't see this. Definitely the highlight of tonight's episode. Did you understand that joke? No, but I don't speak Italian. <laughs> then we get Muppet News Flash. The first couple of Muppet News Flashes were really lame. Then they got into this habit of having the guest star show up, basically via remote, right, and playing a character. If you remember, they did it with Jim Neighbors, and I think they did it with Ruth Buzzy, too. Yeah. And this time you get Harvey Corman, and is Harvey, is Harvey knocked this one out of the park? I mean, he knocks himself out. He's knocked everybody else out, too, from the sound of things. It's different, though, because he's not over, to over the top in the same way as he's been for the rest of the episode. He's more committed to the bit in a weird way. Yeah, he plays a boxer who doesn't have anyone to fight, so he's, he's announced that he's going to fight himself. And he's predicted he's going to knock himself out in the 10th round. That seems like it would uh, wage hell in Vegas. Can't imagine how you would bet <laughs> on a fight like that. But I think I will be able to knock myself out in the 10th round. <laughs> in the first few rounds, I will work on my body blows. Then I'll go for my head. Carl's body may last two rounds, but I think his head has already gone down for the count. I think it might be actually his funniest little piece in the episode. But then we get a musical number that also comes out of nowhere. Has Robin formally been introduced on The Muppet Show yet, or is he just showing up now? So, the last time we saw him was in uh, I'm in Love with a Big Blue Frog, that musical number, mm -hmm. where he is just part of the chorus. He has not yet been introduced or established backstage, and he has not been established as Kermit's nephew yet. So, basically, all Robin is at this point is he's the little frog from The Frog Prince. Oh, brave Sir Robin! And he's had a couple of appearances. I think he's also in Temptation. Is he in Temptation? Editor's note, he was not. The two things I remember from Temptation are Kermit and Peggy, though, to be fair. Yeah, that's true. And he sings a song by A.A. A. Milne. 
not a Winnie the Pooh song, but a song by A. A. Milne called Halfway Down the Stairs. This was a, this uh, will put this on the list for the watch. This is also a song that will be sung at uh, Henson's Memorial. It's a very simply staged number where Robin is sitting on some stairs. It's a sweet song. Really, this is just an excuse for Jerry Nelson to sing a song. But I know Jim was a huge fan of the song. Jim, when he was growing up, had his uh, family, I think with his mom and with Deer, they would sing songs from the A.A. Milne uh, songbook, A.A. Milne poems set to, set to music. But what I was impressed with those days, there's actually some nice camera work in this because it's a very stark set, right? It's, it's pretty simple. There's really just the staircase. It's very black box theater. There's a staircase and then of basically the void behind him. <laughs> and he sings this song, you know, halfway up the stairs is the stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like it. I'm not at the bottom. I'm not at the top. So this is the stair where I always it seems sort of like a, a pre-Rambo connection, or maybe more more accurately, a more pre-it's-not-easy-being-green. I noticed there was some cool kind of camera work with the, with a crane that kind of floated above Robin to help accentuate the up and down of it. But mostly it's just very simple. It's Robin sitting on some stairs. It's still the, cl- it's the closing number again. <laughs> they still have yet to master, I think, the closing number. Corman's not in it. Notice, notice Corman does not sing. Um, almost almost everyone's tried to sing at some point. He didn't sing in Blazing Saddles. Did he sing in History of the World? I don't remember. Uh, I don't think so. He's, doesn't he just play Count the Money? Yeah, Monet. Monet, say it. Monet. I mean, if he's not a singer, he's not a singer. He's a comedian. But they always try to end with a musical number. And so to have it end with this very small, intimate, song sung by a character who is not at all established is kind of a weird choice. Out of context, I love and I love the song. In context, it feels a little weird. We close and Harvey comes back out and he's still wearing the damn chicken suit. Listen, man, maybe it's a 70s thing, but men in chicken suits, I don't find that funny. Do you find that funny? I'm looking at this episode and I'm wondering what would happen if it showed up like in season two or three when Gonzo had already established his affection for chickens. Yeah, there would have been something there, sure. They definitely would have played that up. They would have uh, had some storyline where Gonzo saw him from afar and thought he was this hot chicken. I don't think Corman, I think we're pretty clear, I don't think Corman really is a great guest star. I'm not sure how much of that is his fault, though. It may just be the material he was given. Or a combination. But I'm also, like, he, Moreno was able to take all the material that she was given and make it hers. So, depending on how early on, because this is season one, the Muppets are known, but the Muppet show isn't known. It might have just been Corman phoning it in. It could be a combination of maybe the material isn't the best, and therefore the performer does not rise to it, or, or, you know, doesn't rise above it. There are some performers that if you give them, like you said, you know, if you give them something that's maybe subpar or maybe just workable, they're going to find a way to make it work. I feel like Corman's given fairly mediocre material and does, uh, you know, probably a little bit better than mediocre job, but he doesn't infuse it with his energy and he definitely doesn't make it his own. Besides that, I think this is a great episode <laughs> because of the things I've talked about. I think that the both electric mayhem numbers are great, but especially the, the jam session, good grief, the comedians, a bear is great. 
I, uh, Halfway Down the Stairs, again, is a song that I have a lot of affection for. So there's a lot of really good stuff in this episode. I just, and even, even in the Corman bit when he is the circus trainer, I think Thog is really funny. Thog is amazing in that sketch, yeah. So I think it ends up being a pretty good episode. Next time, it's not easy being green. So next episode, we are watching episodes 111 and 112. 111, the great Lena Horn. Very excited about that. And then episode 112, Peter Ustinov. Please check us out, lunaticdaring.com, at lunaticdaring on Facebook and, you know, all the all the social media garbage. We'll talk to you next week. I'm Chad. I'm Nick. I'm going to say happy holidays, but by the time you're hearing this, the holidays have already happened. So I hope your holidays were happy. Let's hope that the New Year's happy. I, I'm going to aim for let's that. Ho- let's hope that when this drops, the New Year is happy. And uh, everybody take care. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio. Well, the show tonight certainly didn't lay an egg. Wanna bet?